Acts chapter 25, we have been following, again, discovering the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And I know it feels like in these last number of chapters that we've been discovering the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. There's not been much mention of the Holy Spirit, has there been? Not like there were in some of the earlier chapters where people were being baptized with the Holy Spirit, the household of Cornelius, the day of Pentecost. And so it seems like, well, the Holy Spirit has drifted off the scene. The Apostle Paul has drifted on the scene in terms of the narrative of Luke. But can I remind you that what is behind the Apostle Paul is his own conversion experience, his own being filled with the Spirit. So it's the Spirit of God acting through the Apostle Paul. And we're discovering how the Holy Spirit works in and through the lives of his believers. And it's just the same thing with your life and my life. So far from the Holy Spirit disappearing, the Holy Spirit is just appearing through the life of the Apostle Paul. And can we notice, church, that one of the sure signs of the Holy Spirit in your life is a desire to tell people about Jesus. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. And so if you are a Spirit-filled believer, you will find yourself desiring to tell people about Jesus. It's a natural thing. So that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. God's got a call on his life. He's been this extremely busy, active. I mean, he's an active guy. He's traveled thousands of miles in his missionaries' journeys, the first, second, third missionary journeys. He's planted multiple churches. He's been beat up a bunch of times. He's ministered to all kinds of people. He's traveled with ministry teams. And now we find him, we left off in chapter 24, in a city called Caesarea. It's north geographically of Jerusalem. We visit there on our Israel trips. And that's where he's been. Look at chapter 24, verse 27. It says, after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So we studied Felix was the governor of that area. Paul had been imprisoned. There's no real charges against him, but Felix was kind of a greedy guy, and he kept Paul in prison because he wanted to bribe him. So Paul and he would meet regularly, and uh, Paul would share about righteousness and self-control, and we, we just read that last time we were together. And that went on for two years. And now a new governor takes over, Felix gets recalled to Rome, and Festus whose name means festival. It's not going to be much of a festival for him as he takes on his new job. Festus takes over and he leaves Paul bound. Can I just state the obvious? Paul's an active guy. I can imagine being in prison for two years was not easy. I can imagine that there's many times where he asks God, why am I here still? I, I got work to do. I'm being stifled here. And I'm sure there were many, like me, I don't like to be behind a cubicle. You know, I don't like to be confined. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul did not like it. But Paul was being protected in a way. The Jews wanted to kill him. So he's being protected there. But this is where God had him for two years. This is a new season of his life. And, and I think it's easy to say, well, Lord, I'll do anything you want. I'll go. I'll be active. I'll do this. I'll, I'll teach Bible study. I'll plant churches. I'll change diapers. I'll be security team. Whatever. But what if God said to you, I want you to start a prison ministry? Now, don't do the thing that it takes, you know. Don't get yourself in trouble to start a prison ministry. But what if God said, I just want to keep you quiet for two years? You're going to go through something and it's going to be tough. But for two years, you're going to be less active. Would that be okay with you? You're going to actually lose some freedom. Would that be all right? Would you do that for Jesus? Well, Paul did. 
for two years, he stayed bound. Now, chapter 25, verse 1. Now, when Festus, the new governor, had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him, Paul, to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Now, if you've been studying with us along this story, you would recognize those words. This is a second reiteration of a plot to kill Paul. The Jews did not like Paul's message. They did not like what Paul believed, and they wanted to kill him. These are religious people killing others for the sake of their religious needs. That's not unfamiliar, is it? Now, this is two years has gone by. The first plot to kill Paul had been uncovered by the commander. They took him into protective custody, and they had been keeping him there. They moved him from Jerusalem, where he was under threat of death, and they moved him up to Caesarea, where he's been imprisoned now. And now this new governor comes on, and he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the Jews. That's what a governor has to do. He's got to govern these people. And the Jews were hard to govern. This Rome and the relationship between Rome and the Jews was very tense. And so Festus now, he wants to do a good job. Historically, we don't know a whole lot about Festus. He only lives for about three years after he takes on the governorship. So historically, we don't know a whole lot about him. Josephus basically says that he was somewhat of an honorable man, unlike his predecessor, Felix. So this honorable guy, he wants to do an honest and a good job, and he's got to play politics, right? He's got to keep fires quiet. So he's got to check on the Jews, see how they're doing, see what the relationship is like. This is one of the areas where he governs. So they immediately start to tell him, oh, there's this guy you have in custody, Paul. We got to get rid of this guy. He's a problem. And his own, tell me about this. So they lay it out to him and they say, we want you to bring him down here. We're going to ambush him and kill him. And I would think after two years, I mean, two years is a long time that they would have maybe said, you know, Paul, yeah, he's been in prison two years, whatever. We're over that. We've moved on. But not the case. What is it in your life that by now you should have moved on, but you haven't? Some old deals. There's not even anything there anymore. It's just in your own mind. It's something that you're perpetuating. Like these guys, all it consumes your thoughts. To hang on to this thought of ambushing Paul, they had to focus on those thoughts for two full years so that as soon as Festus comes down, they're like, okay, Paul, boom, we're right. our thoughts are right there already. And your thoughts can get locked in. What is it that your thoughts have been locked onto that you haven't let go, that you won't put to rest? And that's how these Jews were. They lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea. He said, uh-uh, I'm not bringing him to Jerusalem. And that he himself was going there shortly. So Festus was going to come down from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Therefore, verse 5, he said, let those who have authority among you, the religious leaders, go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. I'm not coming to Jerusalem, Festus says, but I'll tell you what, if you want to come to Caesarea, then you can come and we'll hear this thing out there. Verse 6, and when he had remained among them, among the Jews for more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. Anytime you're talking about Jerusalem to anywhere else, you're going down. Even though on the map, Caesarea is to the north, it's still geographically lower. You're going down from Jerusalem. It can get confusing if you don't understand that. 
So when he was there 10 days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, the official judgment seat of the governor, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about, and it literally means they actually sort of encircled him and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, and this is a quote, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. These were the old accusations that they had made. They couldn't prove any of them. They weren't true. They were trumped up charges. And now they're still bringing these charges. And Paul says, look, I haven't offended the Jews. I haven't done anything against the temple. And I haven't said anything against Caesar. I haven't offended anybody. And that reminds me of Daniel. Remember the Old Testament book of Daniel, the prophet who was carried away captive as a teenager to Babylon when the Jews were overrun by them. Jerusalem was sacked and people carried off. Well, Daniel was carried off. And he managed to rise kind of in notoriety within that government. And he finds himself with the king of Babylon, sort of wanting to put him in a prominent place of leadership. And the other people didn't like that. People that you know, knew Daniel was a Jew, they didn't want to see him rise to a place of notoriety. So they began to plot against him, much like they did here with the Apostle Paul. They said, we got to find something. we got to find some dirt on this guy. You know how it is when someone runs for election? Everybody immediately starts digging up dirt. How can we start our slander campaign? What can we get against this person to run them down so other people won't vote for them? So they start the slander campaign against Daniel, but they have a problem in Daniel chapter 6. You know what the problem is? They can't find anything. Daniel's as pure as the driven snow. He's a good citizen. He does everything right. He's not speeding. He's paying his taxes, everything. Can't dig up any dirt on him. So they say, well, if we're going to find something on Daniel, it's going to have to be in connection with the worship of his God. That's the only place we can fault this guy. Daniel and Paul both living not a sinless life, but a blameless life. Do you know what it means to live a blameless life? That means that everything is out in the open. There's nothing, if people start digging around and looking behind or looking into your life, they're going to find that you are who you say you are, that you are in reality who you are in secret. There's no hypocrisy. There's no difference. For Daniel, they looked into his life. Hey, he is in public who he is in private. And that just means that hey, we're not perfect, right? We're not sinless. So there are times when things go on in our life and they need to be confessed. They need to be brought out into the light, not necessarily in front of the whole church or on Facebook or something like that. But the idea is that I'm not living a secret life. There's nothing that someone could dig up on me. That's a great way to live. And so when it comes to accusing you, maybe I've heard this said that if someone ever accused you of being a Christian, not of doing wrong, but if someone accused you of being a Christian, would they find enough evidence to convict you in the worship of your God? If they said, well, we think that guy is a Christian. Oh yeah, how do you know? Well, he reads the word of God. She prays. They're involved in fellowship in the life of the church, breaking bread together when communion is served. Those are the four things they identified in the book of Acts. Would those things be true of you? Because there's a lot of people that say they're Christians, right? We just saw the whole thing in Charlottesville by a group of people that carry a Bible. So, well, is there enough evidence to convict them of being a Christian? I think there's enough evidence to convict them of not being Christians. Because that is not consistent with Christ. 
So if your life is looked at, is there evidence to convict you of being a Christian? And I hope there should be, there should be. So with Paul, no offense, nothing given. He could have been, should have been, would have been set free, except for this tense political situation between Rome and the Jews. Verse nine, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, you know, watch out for political favors, right? Festus should want to do what's right. Instead, he wants to do these people a political favor. He answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? He says, look, Paul, you know, look, come on, Paul, put yourself in my sandals. I got a tense issue here. Help me out, right? I got to keep the peace here. These people are hard to rule over. They want another hearing. Come on, how about you say we just go on to Jerusalem and we'll meet there. And what's Paul say? Verse 10, so Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I like this, I do not object to dying. Hey, if I've done something wrong and I deserve to die, I'm ready to take my punishment. I'm ready to take responsibility. I'm not afraid. Paul's not afraid to die. He just doesn't want to die prematurely. I do not object to dying, but if there is nothing in these things of which these men can accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. So Paul says, look, he's not going to run after problems. Paul knows that if he gets released, they're going to kill him. And he knows also that God said he's going to Rome. That's what God told him. So you think if God tells you you're going somewhere that you'll end up going there? Absolutely. So Paul has no problems, you know, he stands there in front of the governor of, for Rome over that region, and the guy says, hey, help me out here, Paul. And Paul says, no. Look, let's end this circus. I'm not going to Jerusalem. We've already talked this over. The charges have already been brought. There's no proof. I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm going to Caesar. And Paul, as a Roman citizen, had the right to appeal. It's like us appealing to the Supreme Court. So Paul is, in a sense, taking that right he has by being a Roman citizen, saying, hey, we're done with this. Take me to Caesar. And Paul knows exactly what he's doing. So now Festus is going, oi, they, right? Take me to Caesar. Now Festus has to deal with this, verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, so he had those that were ruling under him. Paul says, hey, I want to go to Caesar. I want to appeal this case. So he confers with them. They get the affirmative answer, and he says, you have appealed to Caesar? Fine, to Caesar you shall go. I think Festus was kind of glad for that. Like, okay, sort of get him out of my hair a little bit. And the rest of the book of Acts will be, once we get through chapter 26, will be entailed with Paul's trip to Rome. It's going to involve shipwreck and being stranded on an island and being bit by a snake. It's not the direct path we would like. But nonetheless, he's going to get him there and get him there alive. So to Caesar, you shall go. Now, verse 13, and after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. It's multiple conversations, all these people involved. The apostle Paul is like a hot potato. No one knows what to do with him. People are talking about him. And now Agrippa and Bernice, King Agrippa and Bernice come to Caesarea to greet Festus. A lot of names I know hang with me. Festus is who? Festus is the governor. I'm glad you knew that. Festus is the governor. King Agrippa 
is the king that's overseeing the Jews in that area. So the Romans kind of oversaw the whole thing, but the Jews had some of their own leadership under the Herodian dynasty. You remember Herod the Great, who was the one that tried to kill all the babies to get rid of Jesus. And so you know Herod the Great and King Herod Agrippa I, and this is King Herod Agrippa II, and I'll explain that in a second. So they had some leadership Uh, King Agrippa could appoint the high priest for the Jews. So he was, in that sense, king over the Jews. I know, all very interesting and exciting. But watch this, it gets better. Okay, you're hanging with me for a second. All right, we hate history, but make it good, Steve. Okay, I'll try. After some days, King Agrippa. King Agrippa, great-grandson, Herod the Great. Herod the Great tried to kill all the babies at the time Jesus was born. His dad was Herod Agrippa the first. And uh, Herod Agrippa I is the one that killed James, the brother of John, the two sons of thunder, the two fishermen that became disciples of Jesus. Well, King Agrippa I had James put to death, and then he died, Acts chapter 12, when he was sitting there in front of everybody in all his pomp and circumstance with all his bright clothing. He didn't glorify God, and the Bible says he was lovely, eaten by worms. Eaten by worms. So that's what came to the end that his father came to. At this time, King Agrippa II is 32 years old, and he's with this woman, Bernice. Bernice is an interesting and a complex woman. Uh, (laughs) Where to start? She got married, and her husband died. Then she married her uncle, and then he died. And then she spent 15 years as the sort of mistress of this King Agrippa II. Now, why is that interesting? It's interesting because not only is she his mistress and was involved in this relationship with him for an extended period of time, she was also his, are you ready to gasp, sister. One year younger than him, their sisters, and to make Christmas all the more exciting, she is the sister of Drusilla, who if you look back at chapter 24, verse 24, was the wife of Felix, the previous governor. Are you feeling like you're watching a daytime soap or what? Now, I labor to give you this information Not because I like history. One reason is to say, hey, these are real people we're talking about. The Bible is not a storybook. And I don't even like to say, hey, we meet some new characters in the story. That makes it sound like it's a myth. We're meeting historical figures in the history of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. These are real people living out their real lives in real time and real wickedness and nastiness. Bernice and Agrippa. I also tell you that because that's going to be important as we move a few verses down. So hang on to that lovely historical vignette. We'll come back to it. Verse 14. When they had been there many days, Festus, the governor, laid Paul's case before the king, Agrippa II, saying, there's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, the previous governor, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. You bet they wanted to judge him. They want to kill him. Remember, now this is Festus talking to Agrippa about Paul. To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, They brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, who Paul affirmed to be 
alive. So as Festus is recounting this to Agrippa, he says, look, Agrippa, I got them all together. The Jews stood up as I was on the judgment seat and they brought no accusation that I could lay my teeth into. Like it was nothing against insurrection. There was nothing against Rome. He didn't do anything that I could really pin on him. But what did he do? Well, the whole argument was about some guy, look, some guy named Jesus that they say he died and Paul says he's alive. Isn't that interesting? Like here's Festus, the governor of Rome. And when it comes to these matters of their own religion, or or really the Greek word means their own superstition or things dealing with God, it's their own thing. And and I don't really know much about it. It's something to do with a guy named Jesus and he died and Paul says he's alive. I don't know. Some nonsense like that. Not, Not important to us. And I found that interesting because, you know, there was a day where you and I could talk to almost anybody school, work, someone we meet at the gym or on the soccer field or baseball diamond or wherever. And if we said, hey, where'd you go to church when you were growing up? They would have an answer. Yeah, I went so-and-so to church, right? Yeah, I grew up going to church. How many of you guys grew up going to church? Yeah, almost every hand is up. But nowadays, you know, that's changing. You know, we can't assume that people know the gospel. We can't assume that people in church know what it means to say, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't assume that people understand why Jesus is necessary or even who he is, who he was. See, we assume a lot of things because we understand, because we go through the Bible verse by verse, week after week. We know some things, but you have to remember the person you're talking to, they may be more like Festus than like you. You may say, hey, have you ever thought about making Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? And they'd be like, huh? Who's Jesus? What's that all about? Why? Because they've never been to church. That's usually the first question I ask if I'm meeting someone looking to strike up a conversation and looking to, you know, to see where they are with spiritual things. I'll say, so did you grow up going to church? And whether they did or didn't, it doesn't matter. It still leads to a conversation, right? So Festus, it's interesting. It really doesn't know about this thing. Paul affirms to be alive, you know, whatever. Tell Agrippa, whatever. Verse 20. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I don't know about these spiritual things. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. You know, everything was okay until Paul then appealed to go to Caesar. And now I've got to keep him until I can get him there. Notice the title he uses for Caesar. And by the way, it will be Caesar Nero. At the time Paul goes to Nero, Nero hasn't started his persecution against the church yet, but it would be Caesar Nero, but he calls him Augustus. Did you catch that? That's a title, a title of reverence. In fact, it literally means the one worthy to be revered. It's a title that should only be used for who? Who's the only one really worthy to be revered? Jesus? God? Yeah. But here, so it's like saying reserved for the decision of the reverend. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We can always tell when people aren't familiar with Calvary Chapel. Oh, let me introduce to our pastor. This is our pastor. His name is Steve. I said, oh, hello, Reverend. Nice to meet you. No, 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 no. Hold that off. Uh, don't call me Reverend. I am not the one to be revered. I am only pointing people to Jesus, who is the only one worthy to be revered. Now, interestingly, verse 22 says, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Coincidence? I don't think so. What did God tell Paul? You're going to witness to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to 
kings. Ah, the plan is lining up just as God had said. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, notice that, we'll come back to it, and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. So get the picture. Again, when we go to Caesarea by the sea, we sit in the big theater there, beautiful, overlooks the sea. I mean, it is gorgeous. Imagine going to the movie theater and having a view over the ocean. I mean, that is just awesome. But that's the setting, that's the place. And so it's time for this hearing to take place, this inquisition, this inquiry, and out comes the king and his mistress or sistress. I don't know what you want to call her. And out they come, and everybody is, oh, everybody's clapping, and everybody's showing them all this pomp. The word pomp is interesting. You know, like when we think of pomp and circumstance, you think of the wedding in England when the prince gets married, and oh, it's this parade, and, and everybody is oogling and ogling, and out they come. Now, we know what really they're all about, right? We know what kind of a woman Bernice is. We know what kind of a family Herod Agrippa comes from. And yet, the word pomp, you'll find this cool. It's the Greek word where we get our word fantasy. Fantasy. They're living, he says, a fantasy. Because how great you are in this world won't last. Because you see, there's another judgment seat. There's the judgment seat of Christ. Now there's the white throne judgment where believers and unbelievers are separated, where the final judgment is made. But for those of us that are saved, We don't have that judgment seat to look forward to. We have the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And that's where rewards are divvied out. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about it. Hey, in this life, we aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because we all will stand before the judgment seat, Bema seat of Christ, and receive the reward for the things done in the body. In other words, once you get saved... Your life doesn't end. It's not it. It's not about being saved. There are rewards based on how much, how little you pursued and fulfilled God's calling for your life. Did you take what Christ did for you and then build on that with temporary things that really were meaningless? Did you try to build your own pomp and circumstance? Did you build your own fantasy life trying to convince people how great you were on your Facebook page and on your social media feeds? And here's my life and look at me. Or... Did you build on Christ with eternal things, gold and silver and precious stones, as that passage says in Corinthians? Did you take that and did you make the most of what Christ gave you? Good question, isn't it? Because there's a day when we'll all be accountable for what we've done with Jesus. Now, again, we're all going to be there, but Paul says it in a funny kind of way. He says, some will be saved as if by fire, as if escaping a house that's burning. So in other words, you'll be there, but you're going to smell like smoke and you got nothing to show for it, nothing with you. Some people are going to be walking into heaven with a dump truck load full of all the good works that they've done in their life. And other people, you're going to be there, but you're barely skirting in. What's that smell? (sighs) Smells like smoke. Yeah, everything I did my whole life didn't count for anything eternal. Yeah, I'm saved. But nothing I did my whole life, nothing I spent my time on, nothing I spent my energy into actually was eternal. So they bring Paul out, this pomp and circumstance, this fantasy. They entered the auditorium in this parade. And verse 24 says, Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. 
But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa. I mean, you got some experience with Jewish stuff. So that after the examination, again, not really a trial, more of an examination, after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against him. So Festus has got this dilemma. Paul's appealed to go to Caesar, but there's no charges. He doesn't understand what they're talking about with this Jesus guy. So he says, Agrippa, I need some help. I need something to pin on this guy. If I send this guy to Caesar... And the Supreme Court, and they say, okay, here he comes. Festus has sent this man from Caesarea to, to Rome to be tried. What are the charges? And Festus would go, uh, we don't know. What? Get out of here. You know, and, and leave your governor card at the door. You're fired. No way. So he's got to have something to say. And he's hoping Agrippa can help him out. Hang with me. Verse 1 of chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Festus has spoken, and now Paul gets to speak for himself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy or fortunate, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So Paul says, hey, Agrippa, look, I know you're an expert. I know you know about Jesus because your great-grandfather tried to kill him. I know you know about the apostles because your father killed one of them. So I know you're, Paul probably was like giggling under himself there. I know you're an expert in these things. I'm going to give an answer for myself. He says, I'm going to give an answer, an apologetic. It's the Greek word apologia, where we get the word apologetics or to give a defense, to give an answer. So Paul gets to answer for himself before this king. Now, we talk about apologetics, being able to defend the faith. We're probably not going to be before kings. But how ready are you to defend the hope that you have? I find that so many Christians are sorely unable to verbalize what it is they really believe, why it is that they have hope. You come to church and you believe in Jesus, but when someone asks about the resurrection or when someone else asks about a variety of different things regarding Jesus and the gospel, many people can't verbalize that. They don't know how to explain that. If someone asks you, tell me why you have hope, could you tell them an answer? I think many of you probably could, but if you can't, may the Holy Spirit help you in that time. May you be willing to give an answer. And you should. Look, this is the time for us to be able to tell people, look, Charlottesville has no answer for what happens. It's not more police. It's not more laws. There's more hatred and there's more division in our country now than there has been in a long time. And the answer has not been discovered by people are trying. What do we do? How do we handle this? The answer is still Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you have to be able to say it and willing to say it. My manner of life, verse four, from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Hey, listen, Agrippa, these guys know I'm one of them. I grew up in Jerusalem. I grew up being taught all the Jewish things. I had a great teacher. They knew me from the first. 
I'm not a guy that came out of nowhere. I have a relationship with these guys. Some of them that are sitting there probably served with him on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. He knew them personally. They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. See, if you ask them, they'll tell you. I was a Pharisee just like them. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. What's the hope? The hope is that Jesus Christ is their savior. He's the promised savior. Paul is saying, I'm being accused because I'm saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God promised us as a people. And so verse eight, he says, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? This is one of the accusations. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. The Pharisees did. It's sort of the only remaining thing against them is that he believes in resurrection. And he says, hey, Agrippa, can we talk honestly? Can you almost hear Paul being honest with him and sharing his heart? He says, Agrippa, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? I mean, you know about these things. You know the claims. And isn't that a great question for us? Why should it be thought incredible by you or something hard to be trusted that God raises the dead? You know, there are pulpits filled around the country with pastors that do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Churches become in many ways just a social function, a social group where we do socially good things and try to help people in need. And that's all fine and well, but it ain't the church if Jesus ain't alive. Then we're just people doing good things with no covering for sin. We believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth, don't we, church? We believe in the God of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I don't know about resurrection. That's got to be kind of tough. You know, the Milky Way, no problem. Resurrection, I'm not sure. We believe that God formed the first man, Adam, from the dust of the earth. In your chemical makeup, in dirt's chemical makeup, same constituents. Isn't that good to know that you're just like dirt? If it weren't for the fact that God breathed life into Adam, breathed life into his nostrils, and Adam became a living being. Life always comes from life. God's life breathed into Adam. Adam became alive. But I don't know, resurrection, that seems a little difficult to me. That's, I don't know, how can I trust that? Why would you think that's any harder? If God can give life to mankind, then how much more difficult could it be to give life to a body? Jesus calls Lazarus, come forth. Calls a dead man to come forth. God is still calling dead men to come forth. And dead men are still coming alive. And there's a day, not just spiritually, but physically, where because Jesus is alive, you and I, do I understand it? With all my biology background, I don't get it either. But there's a day when you and I are going to literally, physically, bodily rise from the dead. And we are going to always be with the Lord forever. Not as a disembodied spirit, but in a spiritual body with the Lord. Pastor, can you explain that to us? Nope, I can't. Read 1 Corinthians 15. If it ain't true, then we might as well go home. Verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Think of Stephen. And I punished them often 
in every synagogue and compelled them, forced them to blaspheme, to renounce Jesus. He wasn't successful. History tells us people were very hard to get to blaspheme Jesus in those days. And being exceedingly enraged, literally a madman raging against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And that's where God got a hold of Paul in Damascus. And I imagine him, as the Jews are there too, he would be saying to them, look guys, I have been where you are. I had the same zeal to kill people like me as you have to kill me. And now he's going to tell him, as he shares his testimony, that you can be where I am. Agrippa and the Jews and you this morning. The resurrection is the real deal. Look, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. And it doesn't matter how you feel about it. The question isn't, how does religion make me feel? Or how does this Jesus stuff make me feel? The question is, is it true? Is it true? If the resurrection is true, and church history tells us that it is, the grave, the tomb is still empty in Jerusalem, and there are still a, the church is still in existence, everything, look up the evidence. If it's true, then you must respond to it. And if you choose for or against, you have to choose one or the other because the resurrection is true. doesn't matter how it makes you feel. What matters is whether it's true or not. Amen, church?